0: Morning. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, California. Streaming online at kuci.org and podcasting on iTunes. Welcome to Prescriptions for Healing Conflict. I'm Lloyd, the show's engineer. Your host is Marie Frank, an attorney mediator since 1985. She's the author of several books, including Negotiations, Breakthroughs, and Fighting for Love. She's a mediator for the Orange County Superior Court Civil Mediation Panel and she privately mediates business, employment, divorce, and other civil cases in her private practice in Laguna Niguel, California. Marie is a professor of negotiations and conflict management and has been a certified state bar trainer for over 25 years. She teaches leadership and conflict management courses at Brandman University and here at UCI. She also trains corporate leaders powerful communication and conflict transformation skills. To learn more about this show and our great guests, please visit conflicthealing.com. Tamari, so who's your guest today?
2: Well, today we have a wonderful guest, Dee Helene, and she wrote this book called Diary of a 99 Percenter, The Struggle Between Survival and Creative Expression. And I just finished reading this book. It's a, it's a novel. And let me tell you a little bit about De Helene, and then we'll talk with her about this struggle. Now, I know this show is about prescriptions for healing conflict, but lots of times the conflict really is within our own self, and then it gets expressed with others. So that's what this book is about. It's about an inner conflict that we're going to talk about, but it's in the form of a novel. So De Helene is a journalist and author, And she is the author of this book that's on Amazon, The Diary of a 99 Percenter, The Struggle Between Survival and Creative Expression. And after she did an investigative series on squeezing of the middle class, she actually started feeling squeezed herself. When during the recession, she lost her full-time writing job and had to put together a bunch of several... um, Part time jobs. As a writer, she started writing down several fictional humorous anecdotes about what it's like to live as, a, as one of the 99 percenters, those of us who actually work for a living. And she never imagined that someday that she would actually weave all those together in the form of a novel, a novel. She gathered these fictional antidotes while she was writing her first book, which was a nonfiction biography. Once that was published, she was inspired to string together all of these anecdotes together into this novel, which is fun to read, and it, is, um, it details the lives of a fictional couple living in Orange County, right here in the O.C., trying to make ends meet during the recession. And we're going to find out more about what she has to say about this book. So thank you, De Helene, for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. All right. So how is it that you really decided the format of this to be like a diary, even though it's really a fictional book?
1: That's a great question. Um, I had never written a novel before, so I was sort of starting from scratch. I had no precedent, and two of the um, books that I've enjoyed the most—one fiction and one nonfiction—are *Eat, Pray, Love* uh, and *Bridget Jones's Diary*. And I sort of combined them into a hybrid. <laughs> Yeah. So we have the uh, fictional part from Bridget Jones's Diary, but with the self-reflection that's inherent in e Pray, Love.
2: Right. So let's explain to my audience, what do you mean by a 99-percenter? What's that all about?
1: Yes. Um, that term got coined at the height of the recession during the Occupy Wall Street protest, and there was an article in Vanity Fair, I think, where it first um, came into the vernacular. And it essentially um, is a term that was coined in contrast to the wealthy elites um, who are associated with the Wall Street and banks, and they're known as the 1%. So everyone else, um, therefore, comprises the 99%. Now, there's different strata within the 99%. Obviously, there's the middle class, and then, you know, you start going down to the point where you get to the homeless. So the 99% is within that, within that strata, people that have to work for a living to survive.
2: Right, right. So, you know, I know that you and I have talked about people think that, you know, it's really an autobiography, but it's not. So why don't you talk about is how much of it is autobiographical? Autobiographical.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Also, I think the word diary, um, when people see that, they assume it is um, autobiograph- autobiographical. But that's the part that I really modeled on Bridget Jones's diary, which is a fictional character who does diary entries. And um, as all writers know, um, especially for fiction, you sort of start where you are, and it can be very loosely based on your own experience. And that's what this was. It was a starting point. Um, as you said in the beginning, I definitely embody the struggle between financial survival and creative expression. So that, is that, that part is definitely autobiographical, but the book in and of itself is fiction.
2: Right. And, you know, when you and I talked before about how nowadays, you know, there are so many people that are blogging and writing articles and putting it up on the websites that, you know, this kind of takes away for the people that have really studied journalism <laughs> and who <laughs> are real Writers, you know, everybody and their brother can be a writer. Well, it's kind of like me. Anybody can call themselves a mediator right now, and whether they have training or not, they can kind of be that. So it's, it, I'm kind of in the same boat, except that I'm, I'm you know, I, I'm an attorney that adds a little bit of uh, credibility to it. But basically, there's still people who can say that they're mediators, and you have all these people that say that there's writers. What's the difference? <laughs>
1: Well, for my nonfiction biography, that was where I used more of my journalism skills, and that's where it's really important to have an editor or someone who's objective, a third party, another set of eyes look at it, hopefully another writer or editor as well. And I did use that for my biography. And for all journalism, that is essential. And what's happening since the Internet with the proliferation of blogging is that people are writing, first of all, they're writing opinion pieces that they're calling news, and second of all, they're not having it edited by any third party. So that dilutes uh, the journalists that are doing both of those things. And so it's essential, in my opinion, that traditional journalism stay just that, where a reporter has an editor and there's a definite line between news and opinion.
2: Right, right. So our protagonist in, in your uh, in the diary of a 99 percenter tony kelly you know who, who is she what do you think who is she really um she's sort of an amalgamation of a
1: lot of different people she basically embodies the struggle that's in the subtitle of you know the struggle between survival and creative expression like myself she's a writer and like myself she values freedom and autonomy and ability to write on her own terms, on her own schedule, but we can't all do that in day-to-day life, so she struggles with unemployment, she struggles, you know, in, in all the things that a lot of people struggle with in their daily life as they're just trying to make ends meet, and the fact that the book is based in Orange County, as everyone who lives here knows, it's a very affluent county, and even in the middle of recession, it's still an affluent place to live. So, I try to depict the external struggle and the internal struggle
2: and yeah, and Tony loves living here. I mean she loves the beauty of of living in Orange County. she's got kind of a love hate relationship though with it, doesn't she with the it's it's so it's such a struggle to live to pay rent um What about that love-hate relationship with money? What is that all about? I know you're a very spiritual person, and and you have a lot of great uh, spiritual quotes throughout the book, which I love, by the way, at the the beginning of each each day that she writes. She's got a little (laughs) spiritual thing to think about, which is great, because that's what I try and do every morning is start out with a positive thing. But she gets a little cynical, doesn't she? He does, and I think that exemplifies
1: one of the main challenges of being spiritual, and as a lot of um, spiritual people say, we're spiritual beings having a human experience. And when we run up against the constraints of being human, which is having to pay rent, having to put gas in our car, having to put food on our table day in, day out, month in, month out, year in, year out, there's going to be challenges. And so... That's where our spiritual practice comes in, to keep us grounded and keep uh, keep us having the faith that we will be able to make it no matter what the outside extenuating circumstances are.
2: Exactly. Now, I know that you are a, a Science of Mind practitioner, so before I ask you about that, why don't you explain to my audience what is a Science of Mind practitioner?
1: Yes, um, that's also a great question. Um, well, we always are people who have studied uh, the teaching and philosophy of Ernest Holmes, who is part of the New Thought Movement, which combines a lot of Eastern and Western philosophy. And it's a very open, inclusive um, practice. And so we've taken required courses and how to pass both an oral and written test in order to become licensed in the state of California to spiritually advise other people and help them in tough times.
2: Yes. And so how is it, you know, I noticed that you used, um, actually you have a lot of quotes by Ernest Holmes, and I love in the very beginning of the book you have this quote, your soul belongs to the universe. Your mind is an outlet through which the creative intelligence of the universe seeks fulfillment. So that's your creative side. Right, wanting to be creative, and then you have an Eric Butterworth quote about prosperity. Prosperity is a way of living and thinking, and not just money or things. Poverty is a way of living and thinking, and not just about a lack of money or things. Which I thought these were great quotes. (laughs) So, how how is it that um, all of your training as a practitioner and you know, looking at prosperity and looking at creativity. Um, how, how is it that you relate to these two quotes and how did those really affect you when you were writing this book?
1: Oh, excellent question. Um, part of being a science of mind uh, practitioner, as well as someone who just, you know, is, is a member of any science of mind center, is that. We really honor, we're taught to honor the creative urge within, to honor that desire to create, both knowing that our thoughts create our reality as a microcosm and in the macrocosm in the external world that we are free to create, you know, whatever we can imagine. And so that is the inspiring part of science and mind. The second quote is about remembering that although Our own personal financial situations, very much similar to the economy as a whole, micro and macro, are cyclical. There's going to be times of great abundance and there's going to be times when the pendulum swings the other way toward recession and and restraint or constraint. So that quote is reminding everyone to just remember we're always in the divine soul, that even when it's not abundantly apparent, and it, it appears that, you know, the money is not coming as readily available, to just remember that we're still in the flow. And just to have that faith, it's really a book about faith, I think, more than anything else. Yeah, there are cynical
2: parts, and that's the human experience, but I think the underlying theme is faith. Yeah. You know, I also picked up on on um, the, the protagonist's fear, you know, there there was fear there, too. When you're struggling to, to pay rent, there's fear. And I think we can all relate to that when, you know, when financial challenges arise. And here we, you know, the show airs, you know, at the University of California, Irvine. We have a lot of students, and they struggle to, you know, be creative and to have, you know, have their classes and to pay their rent and pay for their tuition and and also to be creative. But it. It, it is um, an inner struggle, isn't it? It can be. It's also, yeah. It's really about balance,
1: about being grounded enough to sustain, have financial sustainability while you're creatively expressing yourself. And I think that is the struggle for a lot of people, is to keep that groundedness. So keep the ability to support yourself financially, while you have the urge to create, because the urge to create can be very strong, and sometimes it can lead that groundedness to evaporate. Mm. Because such a primal urge, and
2: balancing the two, that's really the challenge. I remember years ago reading the book, Do What You Love and the Money Will Follow. (laughs) And and, uh, that's all about... I think what you're talking about that creative urge is really going with it not just saying oh I better just get any old job but really if you have that that desire within you to to create something that you do it and there those people who can create and and feel good about it they can find ways to to also be abundant and prosperous so um well, Oh, absolutely, but the, the
1: only thing I would say about that is in terms of doing what you love and the money will follow, you have to come from a place of sustainability first. You have to be right. able to support yourself to do what you love and then hope that the money from doing what you love will be as, as, as much as you would make otherwise. That's the struggle in Western culture. That's what I'm really trying to highlight in this book. Yeah that we can't just do what we love from day one because we have to make a living. I mean in England in England it's a little bit different from what I understand. You can go on the dole like right out of high school. And Americans will look at that and say, Oh my God, how wasteful, how lazy but it's also an incubator for the creative because rock bands like the Rolling Stones and the Beatles have come out of that environment because they were given a chance when they were young be purely creative. They didn't have to worry about making a living, and some make it, some don't. Exactly. But the ones that do, you know, they have that incubation period. We don't get that here in the United States, and that's really the struggle that I'm trying to identify in this book.
2: Do you think that we are just so uh, concentrating on the left brain rather than the right bank creativity in the society. You know, it's like the kids who are really creative, maybe artistic, they don't get the same um, respect in school, perhaps, than, than those. Uh, I, I'm not so sure about school, because there are schools like Montessori and Waldorf that really honor that side. It's more the cultural...
1: Western paradigm, and there's people on both sides of it, but the pendulum, I think, is swinging more in the direction away from that. I mean, there was a huge controversy recently about liberal arts education, and is it, should it even be offered anymore? And of course, Republicans were on one side and Democrats were on the other, and it became a political battle, which was ridiculous, because our whole society, our whole Greek Western society is based on liberal arts principles from the ancient, you know, Roman and Greek times. So to try to extricate that and say, you know, everyone who goes to college to just learn business, to me, that's absurd.
2: Yeah.
1: And there is one chapter or one part of a chapter in the book where I mention France, and I hold them up as an example, because they have made it a priority to honor the work-life balance, both in their culture and now they're codifying that into law. And I give an example of that in the book, and I'll I'll let everyone read it to find out. But France sort of knows how to do it. They've sort of been able to strike that balance between live and work, between creativity and productivity. And we're definitely skewed more toward work in American culture.
2: Yes, yes, yes. Now, I understand you do yoga as well. And even uh, in this book, your protagonist does yoga, <laughs> and so how how does your yoga practice? Uh, how, how did that infuse your book?
1: Well, it's did in a few ways. Um, yoga's been a big part of my life recently, and while I was writing the book, I became a yoga teacher. So I'm not really sure if I was inspired to do that totally independently, or through the writing of the book, if that partially inspired me as well. It's probably a combination and. Yoga is something that is so calming and grounding, and it just puts you in a state of pure presence. And in my mind, it's just um, a great coping tool. It's essential for me to, to do yoga, to alleviate um, the pressures of the human world. Um, that's, the spirit, that's part of the spiritual realm that I live in, and it's the physical aspect of my spiritual practice.
2: So, do you do yoga before you sit down to write, or do you me- meditate? What do you do before you sit down to write?
1: You know, I'm one of the lucky ones. I don't need a muse. I don't need yoga. I don't need anything to write. That just comes. And so, I usually do yoga... At the, I usually write in the beginning of the day in the morning when I am fresh and have a lot of free attention. And I really like to do yoga at the end of the day. This is a release.
2: Hmm. Okay. Okay. So... um. What did you, you know, I notice in the books, whenever I write a book, um, and I'm, you know, finishing a book now, I always learn something about myself, you know, and I'm wondering what um, what you really learned about yourself when you wrote this book.
1: Oh, great question. Um, I learned about my resiliency. Writing a book is a major undertaking, as as you know, and it's not just the writing of it, it's... And a lot of people write books, and they go nowhere. Um, it's the editing of it, which can be very tedious, and the proofreading. And then there's publishing if you have an agent, or the self-publishing if you don't. So there's so many steps along the way. It takes a lot of perseverance, especially when you're doing other things and not just, you know, not, don't just have the privilege to devote yourself to writing full-time. So I really learned, like I did with the first book, that I have the commitment and the discipline to to see it through to the end.
2: And and did you, as you were writing about your protagonist, um, did you find yourself um, really resonating with Tony at times, or did you find yourself kind of in a conflict with her at all when you were writing this?
1: Oh, um, I totally resonated with her. I mean, there's a lot of her in me, and there's a lot of me in her. <laughs> so it's definitely a reciprocal relationship. But, no, I love Tony, and she's a big part of me and will always well be.
2: And how about her boyfriend, Simon? Tell us about him. Um, well, he's also
1: very loosely based on someone I know. But, again, it's fiction, so I took creative license. And he... Um, it's sometimes another a fellow protagonist, and it's sometimes he's an antagonist. So that's helpful in, ter- in the literary sense to create conflict that can then be resolved, so that there is an arc to the story and, and hopefully some resolution. Although the story ends very open ended because I do intend to write a sequel um, that will probably that will hopefully provide some closure for both Tony and Simon.
2: Yeah, I felt at the end that it was kind of up in the air.
0: <laughs> you know, literally. I knew, I, yeah,
2: literally up in the air. Yeah, I knew, Yeah, absolutely up in the air. <laughs> I knew that uh, that you were going to do a sequel, and I was interested in that. So, what what is it that you would like uh, your readers to to really benefit? How can they benefit from your book?
1: I think just by knowing they're not alone. Um, There's a lot of us in the 99%. We're a big group, and there's a solidarity, I think, among us, an empathy. So this book was really written, first of all, to inspire, um, inspire, and then secondly, to entertain, because I did try to write it in a lighthearted, humorous sense, to make people laugh, and I think that makes it more relatable.
2: Yes, yes. So... Do, did you see Tony as being a spiritual person? I mean, did you, I, I saw her, like, kind of yearning for that, but having a challenge in being able to really be entirely, you know, connected. Was, yeah. I, was I missing something? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think you, you got it spot
1: on. She is spiritual, but she's not perfect. She struggles with a human experience just like we all do.
2: And so, um, when you when you think about doing uh, a, this, is you're going to continue the diary, right? In the next book, that's going to be. No, I, uh,
1: I think so. Yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, so, in terms of money, what does money really represent uh, to us? You know, it's just a piece of paper or coins or whatever. What does money really represent to us? Um, and what you want us to think about money, because I th- that was a, that was a big theme throughout the book. Oh
1: absolutely. Um, I think on one hand, on the human plane, money represents stability. And again, if you can get to a place where you're financially sustainable, you can then use that as a launching pad to then, you know, do what you love and cre- and create expressively. But There's also a struggle around money. I mean, that is part of the human experience as well. So that's when we really have to turn to our coping tools and go back to that very first quote from Eric Butterworth that money is circulation. We're always in the divine flow and money is just like oxygen. It's always circulating and we just have to be open to it. When we worry, that's when we restrict ourselves and... When we let go and just let God and know that we're in that flow, that's when it comes in. And that's a constant lesson for me. And I was reminded of that several times while I was writing this
2: book. So did Tony get a life of her own <laughs> when you were writing it? Because you're, you're so used to writing nonfiction, and, and that's what I write. I've never written a novel. You know, when I write nonfiction, you know, I'm, I'm writing factual or I'm writing didactically. And this is your first novel. So um, did she... St- Seem to have a life of her
1: own? Um, I think I understand the question.
2: Since this is my first novel, did it take on a life of its own? Is that or d- yeah, or did she, yeah, did Tony kind of take a, a life of her, her own? Yeah. Uh,
1: yes, um, she did, yes. I, I had never done fiction before, so I didn't really know what to expect, and that's why this book took me a lot longer to write than my first nonfiction book. And I wanted to have fun with it and um, sort of let it just flow. And I didn't give myself a deadline to finish it. I just actually probably took longer than I (laughs) wanted to because I had so much to to write at certain times. So she did take on a life of her own. She took on a family of her own and experiences of her own and it was a lot of fun to write. It It was challenging but it was fun and To um, also let you know, there is a little bit of nonfiction in it. There's an article, some articles from the Orange County Register, and some things that actually did happen during the recession that were indicative of people's emotional and economic states. And I put those things in there just to show how severe the recession was, even here in Orange County. There's an article I referenced about a man on Laguna Beach Gradually was under a lot of financial pressure, and then ended up shooting his wife and their dog, and then killing himself. And right. so that's the true story. Yes, that I put in the book just to show how severe it was.
2: Right, right, and and I really love the way you had uh, Orange County in there, and and that she loved Dana Point and Laguna Beach, and lived in Laguna Beach. All the all the fun stuff that you know—it's always such a treat to read a book that that. You know, that you know the places, you know, you can relate to it. So um, maybe this will become a movie in the future. (laughs) Oh, I would love that. I mean, I have yet to
1: meet uh, fellow authors in Orange County. That's something I would like to do. But I don't know of any that have used Orange County as a backdrop in in the way that I have. I mean, I love Orange County, as you can tell from the book. And that's just, I try to make that shine through it because it's such a beautiful place. It has so much to offer. That's why so many people want to live here.
2: Well, thank you so much. And uh, we have this wonderful book by D. Helene called Diary of a Ninety Nine Percenter. The struggle between survival and creative expression. And um, and just tell us where we can can find this book.
1: Yes, it's available as a paperback and Kindle through Amazon and it's also available as an ebook through Nook, which is part of
2: Barnes Noble. Okay, well, terrific. Well, thank you, D. Helene. We look forward to you know to reading the next book, and we wish you the very best. Thank you so much. Okay, bye-bye. Have a great day. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Monday morning at 830, and visit our website at conflicthealing.com, and write us emails about what you... What concerns you have about conflict in your own life? Thanks.
0: It's about trust, yeah, yeah. It's about faith.
1: It's about trust. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.